Hello. Welcome to a, another amazing episode of Outside the Studio. I am so honored to be here with you today. I have a very special guest on the show. We have Sarah Fay, who is a journalist and author. She is the author of Pathological, The True Story of Six Misdiagnoses. And it's we're celebrating an anniversary with this book, Sarah. It's been out for it's it's been out for a year now and it and it's out in paperback now, correct? Yes, exactly. Cool. So a year later, after giving birth to this baby book, <laughs> how's it going? What's new? Has anything changed? So much has changed. I mean, it's just been so amazing. You never know where you know, the path will lead you, obviously, but I had no idea what was going to happen. But the main thing is that I've gone public um, with my recovery uh, Mm -hmm. from serious mental illness. And so that's a whole conversation in itself. But I was a little bit uh, hesitant to do that. I may have mentioned it here and there, but I didn't really want to kind of get into that. Um, And what's exciting is, so I finished the sequel to Pathological, which is all about my recovery. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that will be coming out um, probably not till 2025. That's just how publishing works. Mm -hmm. Um, But really trying to not only talk about my recovery, but bring recovery to people. Um, So letting people know, I mean, people have been recovering from mental illness for over 300 years. Mm-hmm. I, I had no idea, you know, and yeah. since the 1970s, they've been trying to tell us that we can recover, but it hasn't quite made it into the mainstream, although now it's starting to, which is really exciting. Um, so that book felt, I felt very called to write that book. And now I'm kind of promoting that book <laughs> and pathological, um, which is great because that is definitely the two are very much wedded together for me. And in the paperback, what's also was kind of cool is they let me uh, change two paragraphs. So now the paperback will be a slightly different edition, but Mm -hmm. we are, you know, basically nodding to the second book, which is really wonderful. And that sets up pathological in a very different way before it was the story of my illness, right? Mm -hmm. And the recovery movement is what the second book is called. And that is very much the story of wellness, which is really like a much more beautiful story to tell, although it was a bit rough and rugged. Um, So it's just, it feels like it frames pathological in a different way because pathological was about the psycho, you know, psychiatric diagnoses that we receive and very much looking at how flawed they are. And then it kind of ends. And now it's more like how learning that really freed me from over-identifying with the diagnoses that I received. Because if you over-identify, if I am bipolar, instead of someone perhaps with bipolar, or let's go a step further, which is what I had to do to recover, which is that I am someone who experiences this thing called mania and I am someone who gets really revved up sometimes. And I have this experience. I have these thoughts and these emotions and these behaviors. I also have depression and I have these thoughts and these emotions and these behaviors. Do you see how it really is a different way of looking at your experience? Mm -hmm. Um, And that is being able to do that and being freed of a diagnosis really facilitated that for me. So that's yeah. a lot. And then started a Substack. I also was certified as a peer recovery specialist. And that's a whole other conversation. But essentially what I do now is as someone who's recovered, I help others on their road to recovery. And so basically peer support specialist, or we're called peers, um, the Biden administration has really called for us to step in and fill some of the holes in our mental health system right now. I know that's a lot, so we can go in any direction you want. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, there's so many topics I want to hit because so just by way of background for listeners, Sarah and I connected first on Radically Loved, the podcast, which I co-host with Rosie Acosta. Um, So I'll link that original episode here so people can um, get that conversation if they want to, but I do want to give a little bit of background because we did just kind of jump in 
um, on pathological, why it is called pathological, why that title, and um, a little bit of background origin story on the six misdiagnoses. Um, and I know we went into that in depth and in, in that first conversation we had. So if you want to give us the Cliff Nose version, totally mm-hmm. fine with me, Sarah. Um, and I want to dive into Substack, the the newsletter, and I want to unpack the peer support recovery work that you're doing a little bit more. So those are the, the topics I'm hoping to cover with you today. Should we yeah. start with the origin story and the title of Pathological? Yeah, so that is the story. So from between the ages of 12 and my sort of early-ish 40s, I was diagnosed given six different psychiatric diagnoses. Um, but just to frame it, when I was 12, I stopped eating. I had just this pit in my stomach. It was like, you know, I think I call it a sodden pit. It was like black and, hor- you know, mm-hmm. and um, I stopped eating uh, and lost a lot of weight, obviously, and su- suddenly couldn't hold food down or water. So my parents rightly took me to the emergency room. We met with my pediatrician eventually, and he said, you have anorexia. I'd never heard the word anorexia. I had no idea what that was. Um, and what was really going on um, was that my parents were divorcing and I was going to a new high school and I was terrified, really. Mm-hmm. And I was very, very sad. And that was the pit in my stomach. So I wasn't doing the classic behaviors of anorexia, which is counting calories and weighing yourself and believing you're fat. I didn't have any of those, yet I received this diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And I started to learn to be an anorexic. Um, I learned it from a novel, like one of those young adult books. It's called The Best Little Girl in the World. (laughs) And I learned what anorexics do. And then I continued to get more and more ill and eventually entered you know, partial hospitalization program. And so you just, you know, as we know from pro-ana sites and other, you know, we know from social media, you get influenced by people and you get Mm -hmm. influenced in terms of a diagnosis. This was, by the way, like 1986. (laughs) So, you know, it was 1985, I think. Um, So we didn't have the internet and yet I was able to do it. But flash forward in my twenties. And I was told, um, you know, my food, if we want to call it food issues, I don't know if any woman in the United States gets rid of her food issues, but I did to some degree, like that became less the focus, but what was going on inside of me didn't change. Um, so meaning I, I, you know, this sort of, um, cracking anxiety, like I always felt like I was just going to splinter. Uh, that was the kind of thing that I experienced, um, deep, dark depressions, that pit was always there. I was told I had generalized anxiety disorder. I was diagnosed with that. Then I was diagnosed with major depressive disorder, then um, obsessive compulsive disorder, then attention deficit disorder, then obsessive compulsive disorder with attention deficit disorder with anxious and depressive elements, which was like a whole soup. Um, and then finally, um, I did end up, you know, very suicidal and, uh, in the hospital. And I was told, no, actually you have bipolar disorder and this, um, you know, and that was where I sort of ended up. And this is common, you know, this is what a lot of people are experiencing, especially young people right now, which is you receive multiple diagnoses. So you think, oh, I have this answer, you know, it's generalized anxiety disorder, and then it doesn't get better or it only gets a little better and then it gets worse again mm-hmm. and you go back or you go to another doctor and no, you actually have this or they combine them. And so finally I went to, I was um, out of medication, not seeing a psychiatrist at the time, suicidal. And I went to a new psychiatrist and was just you know not in the frame of mind to understand what was going on or think very clearly but he and I had that 30 minutes, you know, consultation. And at the end, I was just used to psychiatrists, um, you know, and GPs because many of my diagnoses actually came from my general doctor. And we can talk about that too. I think we do in the other podcast, Mm -hmm. um, just that they aren't trained in a way that, um, psychiatrists and, and psychiatric nurse practitioners and some psychologists are to give a diagnosis. Um, they serve a purpose because they allow for access to care, but 
anyway. Um, so I was, you know, at the end of the consultation, I waited for him to give me a new diagnosis or say, yes, you are bipolar. And he said, I don't know what you have. And it changed my life. And I thought, no one knows what I have. No mm. one knows. Mm. These are just approximations. These are just ways that they are, you know, and what I found out is diagnoses have no validity, no scientific validity. That means they can't be proven to exist even. So there is no such thing as major depressive disorder. What's fascinating is, you know, when you go in, you know, what I talk about in pathological is that all of our psychiatric diagnoses come from a book. It's called the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the DSM. And if you look in the DSM, there are lists of symptoms and you need to have a certain number of symptoms to qualify for a diagnosis for a certain amount of time and have experienced them for a certain amount of time. So major depressive disorder, there are over a thousand different combinations of symptoms. So no, you know, it's very rare that you would even meet someone. You can have the same diagnosis, but you don't have the same experience. You aren't even experiencing the same thing. Um, so once I found that out, that these are just, and it's not to dismiss them. They're useful because we use them, but they really are for doctors. They're not for us to identify with. They're not for us to see ourselves in. And I became my diagnoses. I, I thought of myself fully as someone who was bipolar. Um, And what I wish I'd done was known the truth about diagnoses and maybe, you know, been told my diagnosis, but also been told, look, this is for me as your clinician Mm -hmm. to get you the best treatment possible. Mm -hmm. What you need to focus on is your treatment and recovering. Mm -hmm. But I never heard the word recovery in 25 years in the mental health system. Wow. So I know that's a lot, but that's a a nutshell version of um, the sort of trajectory that pathological follows. Thank you. It's so it's really this topic of starting off in um, early childhood, experiencing something very traumatic, like uh, parents separating. And then as a result, we as children the only thing that we can really control in a situation like that is maybe food, right? Like what we put in our mouth. So it seems looking back because I have a similar story in my childhood where my parents separated and I stopped eating as well. I was modeling behavior after my mom. She was not eating. She was depressive. Of course. I mean, she was going through a separation. She had two young kids to take care of and Um, she stopped really being able to function fully. And I watched that she, she is my model and I started to do the same thing. And you described that as, um, what did you say? A dark pit in your stomach, this feeling. And I felt like I was going to choke on anything that I put in my mouth. If I put food in my mouth, I would kind of squirrel it away in my cheeks. And then I would go into the bathroom and spit it out because I was terrified of choking to death. And so I find this so interesting as I look now an adult, um, friends of mine who have kids who have these similar kind of food issues coming up Mm. and the diagnosis that they're, they are receiving and how we, as, you know, society as parents, as healthcare professionals try to make the kids eat. And that's Mm. the thing that we focus on. It seems to me, right. And, um, and we're not like, like zooming out with a bird's eye view and understanding what the hell is going on in this kid's life to make them feel like the only thing that they can control is the food that they're putting in their mouth. Like, it seems like we need to take a wider lens and say, why is this behavior happening? You know, it's that old adage of like, people are jumping down people are jumping off the bridge or or they're finding people um, drowned in the river and everyone's concentrating on these bodies that are washing up on shore instead of going upriver and seeing who's jumping off the bridge in the first place and why. (laughs) Um, So I wonder, you know, now as an adult, having gone through this um, and you, 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 you kind of spoke to it already, but just knowing what you know now, like if you had a, a kid going through something traumatic like that, what would you have done differently for your child? Or what would you say to a parent out there who's struggling with a kid with with this kind of issue? 
Yeah. I mean, first of all, I should say I don't have children, so I'm in no position to say I admire parents so much. I have no idea how you do it. <laughs> like, yeah, I, know. I never wanted uh, children for whatever reason. I guess when I was 13, I said to my mother, I'm never having children. <laughs> so I've known for a very long time. <laughs> um, and I have never regretted that decision. But um, but I know, you know, and again, I can only speak from my experience, mm-hmm. but having recovered after 25 years in the mental health system, it's really hard not to feel like I lost half my life. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. really hard. And I just don't want to see that happen to anyone else. And mm-hmm. so I think the thing that was most important and parents, you know, my parents, you know, I, I sympathize with them so much because they didn't know what to do. And, yeah. and the thing that I hear the most meeting people, meeting parents is that they don't know what to do and mm-hmm. and nor you know we aren't educated and about what these diagnoses are what they mean you know what exactly which is why you know um people have told me every parent should read pathological so they understand that a diagnosis is an approximation it is just a way to get someone care whereas you know i over identified with it and mm-hmm. what we see now is we have young people on social media and they are quote unquote finding community and i do understand that but there is a kind of risk to that as well um which is you know that you are seeing yourself as this diagnosis that doesn't have any validity or reliability so what are you presuming of yourself. Um, and so I think the the main thing, especially getting to anorexia is my parents were told I would never recover. I was told I would never recover. Um, my mother was told that I would likely die as a result of, you know, some of the effects of, you know, the behaviors that I'd been um, exhibiting. So where do you go from there? Mm-hmm. <laughs> where are you supposed to look? And to be honest, flash forward 25 years, the reason I was suicidal was because I had no hope. No one had ever told me I could recover. Mm -hmm. So I have to live like this forever. Who would want to, I mean, it's just, it's, it's miserable. And, you know, others have said this and, and I think it's true is that it's not that some people who, and many people who are suicidal want to end their lives. They want what they're feeling to end. And there's a difference. Um, Yeah. So I guess going back to this, I think just having, you know, in some ways I don't, it's unfortunate that it's put on the parents because clinicians should be more transparent. They should be more communicative. You know, all of that should be happening. And hopefully it is. I I think that most clinicians want that more than anything else. I mean, they're very well intended. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think parents now need to educate themselves about diagnoses. They need to take that, um, that sort of power back, basically. And then guide their child to see, let's look at what you're feeling, what you're thinking and what you're doing, Mm. right? Like you said, Mm -hmm. and then take into account the environment, you know, and their social situation. Um, And it's not that many clinicians don't try to do that, but I don't think we educate our children um, for the most part on what emotions are. I had no idea Mm. until like last year. So, you know, or a few years ago when I started to recover and that was a huge part of my recovery was trying to, you know, what I was doing was really trying not to feel painful emotions. I didn't even know that emotions are sensations in your body. That sodden black pit, it was an emotion that's called sadness. That's called, you know, and, and sometimes when I got that revved up, you know, kind of vibrating plate feeling is, you know, which is how I describe it in my chest, that was anxiety. about going to a new high school, but I had no idea. I didn't know how to identify my emotions. I didn't know how to process them. And I didn't know how to allow them. They're uncomfortable and they suck. And they're part of the human experience. So yeah. welcome. You know, you know, I, I, I hoped recovery meant I'd never feel bad again. Nope. Sorry. <laughs> you still have it all. Right. Yeah, no, that's, oh, that's, I resonate with that so much. Just, I feel like similar to you in my late thirties, recognizing that emotions can be named. And when we name them and when we acknowledge them, that it takes the charge away from that emotion, taking control over your behavior, over your action, over your reaction. Um, So 
With that in mind, I want to talk a little bit more about the recovery movement, and I'd love to hear what recovery has looked like for you. What that, and I know it's not going to be a linear, straightforward, easy, clear answer, and it's your own path and your own journey. And I want to honor that because it's, I'm sure, so different and nuanced for each of us. But I would, I would love to hear more about the book recovery movement and your own recovery process. Yeah. So it was really um, helpful to write the book. Uh, I Again, like I said, I felt like I gave people so much information in pathological and, um, you know, pe- so many readers have told me they identified and that was so helpful with my story and then that it was so helpful to find out about diagnoses. At the same time, pathological sort of just ends. <laughs> and so, as I said, I wanted to give people more. Um, I was scared to talk about my recovery because I didn't think it was allowed. <laughs> I didn't oh. think you were allowed to recover. No one told me you could. But one day I was in the office. I was in an appointment with the same, I don't know, psychiatrist who's still my psychiatrist. I still see one. So in no way should people take recovery as you never have therapy or you never have treatment or you never get help. I see a GP every year. I see my psychiatrist every year, right? Mm -hmm. Healthy mind, healthy body. Like we need a Mm -hmm. check-in. I'm also still on medication. So I want to be very clear about that too. Um, The recovery, you know, movement, the book uh, is really about how I got recovery all wrong. And I didn't understand what it was, mainly because I didn't have a book. I didn't have an understanding of the history of the recovery movement. I didn't have the recovery community, which I only discovered later. And I didn't have my clinician on board with me um, because I was so afraid to tell him because I was so afraid he'd discourage me. But one day we were sitting there and kind of apropos of nothing, he started talking about this patient he had with schizoaffective disorder and how she had recovered. And I was like recovered and that she was off all medication and she was an executive at Google. That's not allowed. How can you do that? You know, and how could I be an executive at Google? I have no desire to be an executive at Google (laughs) and you do not have to become one to recover just so everybody knows. Uh Um, But it planted a seed. And and then I um, later, you know, not soon, soon after I had another suicidal episode and I just knew, I just knew, okay, this is going to go one way or the other. I'm either going to stay like this and end my life or I'm going to get well. And Mm -hmm. I decided, okay, I'm going to get well. I don't even know what that means. I don't know what that looks like, but I'm going to do it. And so, of course, I went in the wrong direction first, which was get off your meds, right? Mm -hmm. Sick people have medication. Well, people don't. Not so. (laughs) And later I found out that in the recovery community, it's very common that people will still be on medications for various reasons. One is for me, my body is completely dependent on them. I've been on them a long time and withdrawal is absolutely brutal. And I shouldn't say never, but right now I will not try it again. And I don't recommend it. And certainly never without a clinician's, you know, supervision, Um, If you do try that, but it's not necessary. Um, People who hear voices often find that the medication does help with that. Mm -hmm. The way I see it is I take a vitamin every morning. Mm -hmm. You know, why wouldn't I take whatever else it is? But the difference now is that I'm not, I, I just have a baseline. I never change the dosage on my medications. So it is just this baseline that I have now. And I'm not looking for, and I don't want to put it like this, but I'm not using it as an instrument to manage certain symptoms anymore, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but so I went all sorts of different directions and that's what the book is trying to save people from doing that. I thought, well, what makes, what is mental health? <laughs> How do I reach that? What is it even called? And mm-hmm. and does it mean I have to have a lot of friends? Like, do I have to like being on social media? You know, like, do I have to be totally well-adjusted? Do I never have to feel anxious or depressed again, or like mm-hmm. a little manic or whatever it might be, um, or compulsive or obsessive and ruminating thoughts? And so it was a very long process of finding out that recovery, according to SAMHSA, so you know our governmental office on mental health and substance use uh, disorders, defines it as a self-directed process of essentially creating a life that you want to live that signals mental health for you and moving toward that life. Mm -hmm. That's recovery. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. So in some ways, recovery is no different. And I love that this, if we understood recovery and it was a part of the mainstream and we all just could walk into a psychiatrist's office while in crisis and think, hey, there are other people who've recovered. You don't have to, and not everybody will. There's not a pressure there, but we can't recover without the option. But you could walk into a psychiatrist's office and instead of feeling like you just received a life sentence Mm -hmm. with a diagnosis, you could feel, okay, this is the diagnosis I have right now. It's possible to recover from it because look at those people Mm -hmm. and they have, and they're very public about it. And so let's try that. But, you know, if there's, you know, someone without a diagnosis who perhaps hasn't been in crisis or isn't in, you know, some sort of uh, mental or emotional distress also does that, right? You decide what kind of life you want and you move toward it, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't, recovery doesn't mean you don't have symptoms anymore because as we were talking about, symptoms are part of the human experience that really helped in my recovery evolutionary psychiatry makes a lot of sense to me. Um, And the idea that we are programmed to look for the negative and to be anxious (laughs) and you, and I'm so good at that. You wanted me on your team, like prehistorically, (laughs) that was what you wanted was me. Like, I'm always looking for lions, like who's going to eat me. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that didn't go away, but I understand it. I have a different relationship to it now. And that has made all the difference, but you know, nothing. And, you know, there's so much more to recovery. Um, and I hope people will see my Substack or go to my Substack. Um, it's serafay.substack.com because I felt like I had found so many resources, so many places that are encouraging recovery and giving people tools and tips on how to recover that I didn't want to wait until 2025 to give that to people. So I started this Substack. It's called the, Reco- the Recovery Model with Sarah Fay. Um, and it just models it and, and, t- you know, it hopefully shows people that recovery is different for each person. It's going to look completely different the same way that our, you know, experiences with mental illness or emotional distress are individual. So will our recovery be, um, and it gives every week it will, if you subscribe, it will give you a tool, a resource and a kind of quirky recommendation from me about recovery and how you can find that. Um, and then it also offers other people's stories of recovery. So how, what does it look like? I don't want just people to think you know, my way wasn't the right way and it certainly isn't the only way. So I really wanted to bring people those stories of recovery. And then um, the paid subscription, uh, you also get interviews with experts. So I have people like Thomas Insel, who was former head of the National Institute for Mental Health on talking about recovery and what he would recommend. Because again, I wanted to make sure that all the information is 100% science supported um, and evidence-based and that we had experts talking, not just me. Mm -hmm. And then you can get my essays as well. And those essays don't always talk about me. They really are also a way for us to explore these different dimensions of um, recovery. So this the essay for this week, for instance, is about how finances impact our mental health. Mm. Because I was, <laughs> I never learned about finances uh, because, and, and I don't want to say it was because I was ill, but I was very, very ill. And so I don't expect me to have <laughs> taken time to like learn the stock market, you know, that wasn't going to happen. And so having recovered, I've really had to learn about, you know, what it means to be financially and mentally healthy together. And so I wanted to talk about that. So that's the Substack and trying to give people as many resources for recovery as possible. Oh, I love that. Well, I mean, I think so many of us don't learn financial literacy. I think it should be a course that we're taught from a young age, you know, if not in elementary school, that might be a little over the top, but at least something that we're required to take in high school because so many of us enter adulthood completely inept to even figure out how to manage finances. I mean, I wasn't in, I was lucky enough to be in the corporate world to have a 401k given Mm -hmm. to me in my twenties. Wow. Congratulations. (laughs) That's amazing. (laughs) But I mean, so many of us don't go down that path or maybe aren't lucky enough to work for a company that does give a 401k. And um, I'm certainly, that's not the only way to be financially um, successful or literate or anything like that. But 
yes, I hundred percent. It's it's so important. However, you identify as a human being, yeah. being financially independent and literate is is such a key skill in this life, in my opinion. Totally. I mean, I think if we really wanted to do something about social inequality teach everybody finance when they're five, Yeah, <laughs> you know, okay, like, cool. I mean, yeah. no, I'm, I don't know about five, but, <laughs> but, you know, I, I always, I teach um, at Northwestern university. And so I always say to my students, can you please just open, you know, an account, mm-hmm. just an index fund and put a hundred dollars into it every month. Mm-hmm. And I, I only say that because there's a finance podcast called the real finance podcast. It's wonderful. If anyone wants to listen to, I, I mean, I'm the last person who would listen to a finance podcast, but they're, they're not trying to sell you anything. There are mm-hmm. two guys who are CPAs who just want to make America financially literate. Wow. It's very cool. cool. Um, but the they told a story finance. of a guy who would, you know, they take questions from listeners and there was a young man, he was 18 years old. And he was putting $100 a month away into an IRA, a 401k. Uh And um, they figured out that when he was, I think, 59 and a half, it might have been 65, he would have $2 million without ever changing the amount he invested in. Wow. I mean, that's amazing. And so, but anyway, this is just going like those things I didn't know about. And I'm trying to educate myself now and, yeah. and really also bring that to people. You know, there, one thing we talk about is just the, when you suffer, you know, when you are struggling with depression or you're experiencing depression, that immediately can affect how your relationship with money, mm-hmm. same with mania, same mm-hmm. with anxiety. And so the, the essay talks about that mm-hmm. as well, you know, they're very much intertwined. And then also, you know, if you've experienced trauma or you are experiencing, you know, economic inequality, what that does to your mental health. Um, But it's all just so woven together. Yeah. And I imagine that feels like, let's take the example of trauma or um, living in a socioeconomic class that feels like a closed loop that you can't really get out of what that does to your mental health and how that compounds the idea or the reality that that is your lot in life. I mean, what, what kind of tools are there any um, mindsets, ideas, can we apply to, to that kind of a situation? Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, you know, one thing has been just like listening to podcasts for me, but also, you know, every Saturday when I'm cleaning my apartment, I do listen to some sort of finance book. <laughs> Typically uh-huh. I will tune out at parts. I mean, I'm just yeah. like, I'm a, you know, I'm an author, like we're not known for our financial acumen. Um, but, <laughs> you know, so, but I, you know, I'm just trying to be exposed to it. But one thing I give in that um, essay and by all means, um, readers or listeners should be able to access it. I think it will be part of the free archive or I'll make sure now that it is, Um, but also, you know, resources um, available to all of us um, Uh where you can, you know, be more educated about Mm -hmm. um, finance. And I think, you know, this conversation is such an example of recovery, Mm -hmm. Um, meaning, so recovery to me is I'm no longer talking all the time about my diagnosis. I'm no longer thinking of everything in terms of my diagnosis. Like I get to have a life now that's Mm -hmm. just not, and that's scary. I mean, it was really terrifying to me because who am I without that? You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, that was my whole identity. Um, and, and I actually didn't really always want it because I thought, how am I going to relate to people? How are people going to see me? You know, and, and some of it was I'd gotten very comfortable in that identity. Um, but now, you know, experiencing life where, you know, every rush of anxiety, every wave of depression is not a sign that something is going terribly wrong. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that I can think about finance and I don't have to see myself. Well, I'm someone with bipolar disorder. And when I had bipolar or I was, you know, was given that diagnosis, um, I actually relinqu- relinquished all of my finances to my parents. Um, and I, because, because I was told I couldn't handle I did, finances. That's sort of a one symptom that is often part of mania, which is overspending. Mm-hmm. And 
you know, I'm not sure that that was even true. I'm not sure that that was one of my symptoms, but then that led to me believing I'm not good with money. And so mm-hmm. now I'm working toward, you know, in recovery is all about, oh, wait, I don't have to have that identity anymore and I can become more literate. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I definitely, if we could link to that um, yeah. essay in the show notes, I would love that. Definitely. Cool. Um, so I wanted to give us some time to dive a little bit more into your work as a mental health peer recovery specialist. You you mentioned it briefly yeah. uh, the beginning, but can you tell us more about that work? Yeah, it's, it's definitely the best thing I've ever done. Um, Before I did this, I really worried, I worried a lot that I was going to get sick again. Mm. And, you know, we have this idea, um, we do offer people remission in mental illness or from a psychiatric diagnosis, but that means you still have it. That means you will never be past it. Um, And there's always going to be a depressive episode or a panic attack or something lurking around the corner. By the way, I still have panic attacks. So there is a panic attack somewhere. Um, But I also get migraines, you know, so I started to look at it that way. That's also just for some reason, part of my my makeup. Um, And I don't, you know, I don't need to extinguish that anymore. Like maybe they will go away. Maybe they won't. Um, I'm lucky that they're not debilitating in this. I mean, they are in the moment, but you know, I can, I can do that. Um, but so remission is, is very, um, like kind of, uh, you know, it's, it's very, it's not any type of complete recovery. Now, like you were saying, recovery is not a linear process. Um, each person, it will be different in each person's life. So just to give people an idea, there's a woman, um, I'm forgetting her name and I apologize to her, but she, uh, I've never met her, but she runs a wonderful um, website and YouTube channel called Living Well with Schizophrenia. Uh And she documents her own experience with it. And it's so informative, whether you've been diagnosed with schizophrenia or not, I find it really fascinating, but also, you know, a lot of the things that, you know, tools that we can use and experiences that we can share, regardless of your diagnosis are very similar. Um, And so I find a lot from her, but she talks about having, you know, kind of stretches of recovery, which might seem like very similar to remission, but that's what it is for her. Um, And then she does not. And and I think um, from what I've heard, many people who experience psychosis feel this, that the psychosis is part of their lives. Um, Some people it's not. So I've also met people who never had a psychotic episode again, you know, which is amazing to even think of like schizophrenia is treated as this dismal, hopeless diagnosis. You will inevitably deteriorate from it. But what if we said to people, no, you, you can, uh, you know, possibly recover. Not everyone will, but it's a possibility. Mm-hmm. And that's where peer recovery specialists step in. Um, so what we do, um, the training is extensive. Um, you, you, They are trying to have now, there is a national certification. It's not uniform across states. Uh, so they are the Biden administration, they, um, and others are looking at possibly creating a, a uniform national certification. So you could know, okay, this person, you know, has this certification or doesn't. Right now, there are three different types of certification. You can sort of have one that you receive through an organization. Um, You can have one that's on the state level and you can have one that's on the national level. And so, but if you are going to go for the national level, um, it's about, it's, um, yes, if I have it correctly and it is different per, you know, per area, but um, 300 hours, I believe it was, of uh, coursework. And then um, it's 2,000 hours of clinical or you know contact hours. Um, and so peer support specialists, what they're trying to do now is, I'm someone with lived experience of mental illness. I've been there. So for instance, when I was suicidal, I, was ta- I went to the emergency room, as many people do. The emergency room is necessary. And please, by all means, if you're experiencing that, you need to go somewhere safe. That said, emergency rooms aren't fun (laughs) for anyone. Um, And and so what happens is you often end up waiting and, um, you know, you're sort of left alone or you're 
isolated, but also watched by a security guard in my experience to make sure that you don't try to leave um, because the hospital will be liable. And, and it's, it's very difficult for someone who's going, who's in crisis to experience that. Mm. Now imagine, and this is happening. There's a peer recovery support specialist there. Mm. And they say to you, I've been here. This sucks. (laughs) I've been where you are. And I've gotten through it. I mean, it gives me chills, but there's a, um, you know, wonderful uh, kind of analogy that's thrown around or kind of fable that's thrown around in, in the peer support community. And it's that someone has fallen into a hole and someone, so, you know, they, someone walks by and looks in the hole and says, Jesus, you shouldn't have fallen down there and walks away. And then a little while later, you know, the person's calling for help and, and someone looks in and says, oh my goodness, you know, what happened? And you fell in there. And the person thinks I should really go get help and walks away. Mm-hmm. And then finally a peer recovery support specialist comes by and jumps in the hole with them. Mm-hmm. And the person says, why'd you do that? Now we're both stuck down here. And the peer recovery specialist says, yeah, but I've been here before and I know the way out. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just like, again, it just gives me chills. But um, so we are essentially now being we're filling holes in the mental health system that weren't, um, that need to be filled. Um, So emergency rooms, community mental health centers, you know, and um, mobile crisis units. We go out on mobile crisis units, helplines, we work helplines. And then also, you know, in uh, jails and prisons as well, which is so phenomenal. I live in Chicago and Cook County Jail is one of the largest mental health facilities in the country, which it shouldn't Mm be. And there is a peer support specialist there now, Mm -hmm. um, which is just phenomenal. I mean, this just wasn't around in the way that it is now. So essentially, but we don't give advice. Um, We listen a lot, Um, often, you know, sort of reflect back, but we can also sometimes share our experience of recovery. We do Mm -hmm. not share our stories of illness, right? That would be unhelpful in the extreme. Um, But so we are, you know, doing really, I see my Substack as peer support. I'm offering people resources. I'm, I'm giving them as much as I can. I'm referring them in some ways to experts, right? So psychiatrists and mental health professionals who can talk to them about recovery. Um, I'm giving them other people's stories of recovery. And so I really wanted that to be an extension of my work as a peer support specialist. Um, I will be uh, interning at NAMI, which is really exciting. So the National Alliance for Mental Illness. Um, And I think I'll be doing a lot of different things. But as a professor, you know, I'm a writer. And so one thing I've offered them and I hope we'll go through is teaching a course on how you turn your story of illness into a story of wellness. And that was essentially what I did with my two books um, was to, you know, pathological is my story of illness, which has helped a lot of people and helped me tremendously. And the recovery movement is my story of wellness, which I hope will help even more people and, um, you know, bring them the tools that I used. And so that is kind of peer recovery in, in a nutshell, but it's been around much longer than now. I had no awareness of recovery, no awareness of peer support. And I so wish I had had both. And, and I didn't discover them until I was asked for pathological. I was asked to speak at an amazing conference um, run by On Our Own of Maryland. And On Our Own is the title of a book written in 60s or 70s by Judy Chamberlain, who's really a recovery movement icon. And what she and many people argued for is they were, these were people we experienced in the United States something called deinstitutionalization. And that was when, you know, the circumstances and treatment of people with mental illness in um, institutions across the country was abhorrent. And so John F. Kennedy um, really pushed through this idea that we will get people out of institutions, we will stop isolating them. We know that isolating people does not help and that people recover best when in the community. And so we will have these community mental health centers instead. Well, Mm -hmm. the deinstitutionalization happened and people were sent, quote unquote, home, even though Mm -hmm. many of them didn't have homes Mm -hmm. and the community centers were never built. Mm -hmm. So that's where we are today. That is why we have so many people with mental illness in jails and on the streets. Um, And so, but 
at that time, many of the people who had been in, you know, who had been deinstitutionalized started to speak out and did recover on their own and, you know, started to create a movement that was, it goes by different names depending on, you know, sort of different periods of time and, and who you're speaking of, but essentially, you know, generally speaking, the recovery movement where they were um, trying to, you know, reform the mental health system and bring recovery to people, primarily reform the mental health system early on. But they were essentially peers, right? They were people who'd recovered, who were bringing their story to others. Um, And now it's evolved. And what's amazing to me um, is just that, you know, we've known about recovery for a very long time. And I think of it as, you know, something because I just discovered it. I think of it as something new. In 1999, in the first mental health um, Surgeon General's mental health report, it called for recovery, for us to move our mental health system to a recovery model, not a bio, and away from a biomedical model that says that mental illness or psychiatric disorders or distress are purely caused by biology. We know that's not true. Um, and, you know, very few, you know, to give psychiatry credit, which it deserves. Um, very few psychiatrists would say that either. Um, some would say that some, you know, conditions are, but, you know, that's sort of another uh, argument. And what I think is it doesn't matter if we're in a biomedical model or a biopsychosocial model, which includes more about environment and, you know, your sort of life situation. All that matters is that we're under the umbrella of the recovery movement. <laughs> that's all I care yeah. about, right? So yeah. that everything, no matter your explanation, because we don't know a lot about mental illness, we don't know the cause, um, it doesn't matter. All that matters is that we keep moving toward recovery and at least give people that option. Yeah. Uh, this topic is so near and dear to my heart when you when you start talking about what um, mental illness treatment looked like in the mid 1900s. I think about my grandma's story, who I've talked a little bit uh, uh, about on this podcast, and I might have even mentioned it when we first spoke, but she was institutionalized yeah. in 1950 something. I want to say 1954. She was diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic. And um, this was after having three children in Alaska, having been moved from a, from her hometown in New York to the last frontier. Wow. Um, and, you know, that drastic change of that city life, which is she was very much a city woman to being in Alaska, wow. where it was dark, and she was left alone with these three boys to take care of. Um, while my grandfather was away in the merchant Marines, I mean, it's kind of like, (laughs) it feels kind of like a no brainer that something like that would happen. But the, to me, I guess where I'm going with this is what happened to her afterwards. So tragic because she, she never recovered. And I wonder if, you know, it was because of the same diagnosis and like, no ability or language around her ability to recover at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and what a tragic story is. And so, so then my mind goes to, I've always had this kind of like little voice in the back of my head about epigenetics and this fear yeah. that I will have something similar happen to me because I have this gene that has been passed down to me, whether it's just because of the knowing of what happened to her mm-hmm. or because it's um, in my DNA or something like that. Yeah. Um, but so I think it's so important to, I, I, I love that. I love to hear what you're saying about this movement towards recovery model um, and the work that you're doing with the Biden administration around the peer recovery specialist um, and the shift to deinstitutionalize and and create community centers, it's so important. So I just want to thank you for your work and I want to thank you for sharing it with us here. Um, it's really near and dear to my heart. So thank you, Sarah. I really appreciate yeah. your time. Is there anything else that you want to say? Um, anything else just you wish that, I would have asked you? Yeah, no, no, no. Just that, you know, I always want to be clear that, you know, 
despite criticisms of, you know, sort of the mental health system, I am fully in support of it. And, you know, I believe anyone who needs help should get help and that we should uh, fund people <laughs> to get help and, and pay for that. Um, but just also that, you know, you really aren't alone and there is hope. I mean, there really is. There are a lot of us who've recovered. And so again, whether or not you recover really depends on how you define recovery for yourself. It is not some ideal. It is not um, a normal or achieving a state of well-being that you might have experienced in the past. It's about moving forward. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm just so fortunate that 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 you know every day I, I think the universe or, or whatever is in charge that I was able to recover. And I hope I can bring that to others. Everyone, that concludes another amazing episode of Outside the Studio. I hope you enjoyed yourself. I hope you learned something new, maybe remembered something old, maybe felt inspired to apply something to your life. My, <laughs> you can hear my dog in the background. She's doing a little happy dance. Um, so Daisy enjoyed it. Anyhow, I wanted to just pop in here to wrap us up to say a couple of things. Number one, I have such an amazing team that helps me put these podcasts together. Without them, I wouldn't you know, be able to bring these amazing conversations to you. So thank you to my producer, my director of creative services, my sound editor, my um, engineer, Consistency Media don't know what I would do without you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And the amazing creation and artistic musical genius, Drew Lovern. Thank you so much for putting together this music for specifically for outside the studio. So unique to the show. Only place you're ever going to hear it is right here. Thanks you guys. You make my world go around. Stay well, everyone. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review, share on the socials, especially if it's a show that you think, hey, this could help somebody else. That's what this is all about, right? We're sharing information so that we're better, um, so that we're inspired, so that we're lifting each other up and we're learning how to be in this world, living on this planet to the best of our ability, sharing information and inspiring one another. And that's my hope. That's my hope for the show. Take care.